everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and for the past couple months, I've been much more of a cycling endurance coach than I have been a cycling journalist, but I try to find a way to balance the two. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach. All right, so we are recording this in Tucson, Arizona, where we just finished up the ENCX Quest Year 3. Uh, So for the past week, we've had 12 girls between the ages of 15 and 18, all in one house, all getting in some pretty big base miles with pro racer Ellen Noble and ourselves, and it was super fun. I'm going to say, I feel like all the girls said it, I'm going to say it too, it was transformational for me. Yeah, it was super motivational week and really positive, and yeah, it was very... um... I guess appreciative that I was able to be included in that and, and help out and sort of dispel or dispense dispense information. And, I don't and so think you dispelled any information. That would just well, be like everything was, you know is wrong. I guess I supported. I guess I was there in a support role. So it was good, but lots of learning and lots of you know big rides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The weather ho- luckily worked out pretty well. It was a little chillier than it normally is in Tucson, but that was actually definitely for the best. We climbed the epic Mount Lemon, and everyone got to get to the cookie cabin and eat cookies the size of their head at the top. I think that was the highlight of the week for most of the girls, which was yeah, pretty great. And they all made it down, which was my main concern. Definitely. So, yeah. Um, if that sounds like a lot of fun for you and you happen to be in Ontario and have a a young girl that is looking to kind of get into cycling, we actually have a three-day mountain bike training camp coming up in May in Singhampton, Ontario. Uh, you can find out more about that at shred-girls.com. It's going to be a super fun day with Peter and I, or set of days with Peter and I, and lots of bike skills, lots of just kind of learning about what a good training block looks like and, you know, getting your devices set up and stuff. It's it's kind of crazy um, if you're if you don't happen to have a coach or you don't have a, happen to have a parent who's very much into this stuff. Um, the technology of how to put a ride on your Garmin or how to even, you know, set up your Garmin and sync it to training peaks and stuff can be really intimidating. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely sort of goes with the process of training which i think is you know the big thing that we're trying to learn you know a lot of these younger athletes are coming from you know just riding with mom and dad or riding maybe with a local group or something and then they're wanting to start training because they are getting to that 16 17 18 where it's you know starting to be if you're going to go down that path in cycling it's becoming you know more like you got to start training so yeah, so just the the basics of training, right? Like we were big on the training frequency this this week was sort of a redundant term that just you need to be on your bike practicing a lot, which is the big part of it for a lot of us really. Like I, I think for myself, it's something that I've really strived for as, as life gets busier in these last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that note, do you have a one thing for for this episode? Oh, that's tough. Yeah. Oh, just just threw it out to you. I have one. I can go now. Sure. <laughs> uh, so my one thing, uh, some of you might remember when we had David Roche on a few weeks ago, he is a ultra running coach. He's my coach. Um, he's also the author of The Happy Runner, and that's March's Athletic Bookworms read. And I know we said it, you know, during the podcast with him that it's a really great book to pick up, but I just kind of wanted to reiterate that as my, my one thing. The more 
I hadn't actually finished reading it when we had David on. Uh, and the closer I get to finishing it, the more psyched on it I am. It's a really great book. So highly recommend everybody pick it up. Um, you can find out all the info on it and get some kind of sneak peeks on it over at theoutdooredit.com if you just search Athletic Bookworms. I don't know. The only thing that comes to mind is like it's been a pretty tough week for cycling. There's been a lot of, uh, I guess, people passing away and mm-hmm. for different you know crashes and stuff as well. Uh, as some you know, very a variety of things have happened. Um, it, actually, honestly, this this two week block, I think every single day that I've gone and I have a news feed that pulls in cycling news from around the world and even just you know regular just any kind of news article that mentions cycling and it really does feel like it's been a really really rough week yeah and i don't know if it's i always whether it's reporting or you know we're hearing about it more or not but there's just a few were fairly you know close to us we knew people and or or friends of ours have known people or some of the athletes at the camp knew people and it's it's a really small world right i think and Mm I think the the big thing that I was reminded of in this past week is just the importance of reaching out to people that are important to you and, you know, just checking that they're okay and actually getting together, you know, with people. A lot of times we're guilty of being, you know, in the same city as people and and not connecting or, you know, being home and not connecting. I think it's it's important. I think that was just driven home. So I I don't know. My one thing is maybe just like true connection or like, you know, face to face and and just sort of keeping those real relationships. Um, Yeah, just seemed really important this past week definitely agree um all right so let's dive into this week's questions um so the first one is about training on the road on an off-road bike so uh the question i'll just i'll just read it straight through uh to train for mountain bike i've always been on my road bike or cross bike with road or gravel tires for endurance rides i only use my mountain bike for a true off-road ride Uh, we've talked about in several episodes that you should train on the bike you'll race on. Um, so for training for mountain bike racing, how do you, how do you set your bike up? Do you take the race bike out? Is it set up for mountain bike racing with knobby tires or do you swap out the tires or something like that? How do you, how do you find that balance? Yeah. And I thought there was maybe like a Leadville tilt to this, but I could be wrong. But I think if we go out globally, right? Like we have our general preparation period and then we assume that we're going to get more specific as the race approaches. So, um, for whatever type of mountain biking you're doing, or if you're a trail runner or something like that, you, you want to be in that specific domain more often. Um, for a lot of mountain bikers. So if we're thinking like cross country or, or something that's going to be on off road terrain, there's definitely, I think a need to be on that bike more both for the position and just making sure that the equipment works and learning what tires work and for skill work and, you know, having to produce power while the traction isn't perfect and it's bumpy. It's a fair bit different than the road. Um, I, I would not like discourage someone from riding their road bike, you know, once, twice, three times a week for those easier days or for the true endurance day where it's steady pedaling the whole duration. Uh, but I do think that, being on that bike more is important so we would definitely do you know a road warm-up and then you know mountain bike time trial or hill intervals uh, and then cool down on the road all on your mountain bike all on the mountain bike yeah like we wouldn't switch bikes which is probably obvious but i think that warm-up on the road is something you know a ride to the trails is a pretty easy way to build in volume for a lot of people and it doesn't add that much time once you sort of 
you know, take the, whatever the car drive and the getting mm-hmm. the, car, the bike on the car and off the car. So that's, you'll see a lot of elites will do that. I mean, I passed several people I knew today on Mount Lemon, riding up Mount Lemon on the road on their mountain bike to then go down the trail. And that's sort of just the way that is, but you could also shuttle that, I guess, or something, right? But probably in the same time you spend shuttling the car, you could probably climb a lot of these things. Um, so yeah, I think there's a good reason for mountain bikers to be on their mountain bike more often. And I definitely see more often than not, people aren't in their goal domain enough. You know, they live in the city and, you know, they just never ride their mountain bike or they never climb hills. And, and I've worked with a couple trail runners and stuff where that's been an issue too, right? And it, it's sometimes tough. You have to drive to get to the trails and stuff. But um, sometimes that's, you know, the best you can do, riding your mountain bike in the city and just trying to piece together little parks and stuff. And so. And then what about the slicker tires and swapping them out? Uh, I mean, we used to do that a lot. I don't, people aren't doing that as much now. I don't know why we've stopped doing that as much. Feels like it'd be a good cost saving. Well, if you don't have them, like that was the old, we used to travel sometimes with like two sets of wheels and have one set with slicks or something like, especially for an extended trip where you were going to do two types of training. Um, Actually, yeah, I remember the first couple of years we were in California, at least a couple of the people in the house wouldn't bring two bikes, but they would bring their mountain bike and then a slick set of tires or set of wheels with slicks on sure, them. Sure, sure. And you could like mix up cassettes or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, it makes sense. I wouldn't personally switch the tires out just for the sake of the position. Like, I mean, you could also set up a road or gravel bike pretty similar Mm-hmm. to your and mountain bike position this question sort of suggests that the guy has both bikes so we're not talking about someone who would need to go out and potentially buy a road bike no and i think the important thing is like there's still a place like i think adding a road bike in is something i often do for like people who have just that's been their introduction to cycling has been only mountain biking we definitely want to add that steady endurance riding is going to be a huge boost to their the quality of their training the i guess the the fitness they develop Mm-hmm. Um, right because we want to have that variety of training as well as the specificity mm-hmm. um, and, and with mountain biking the trouble is that it's just so intense that it's hard to do it every day so people get into that sort of middle ground they're never going fast on their mountain bike but they're sort of moderately that you just can't go easy on a mountain bike so mm-hmm. so that's sort of the dilemma right mm-hmm. now a lot of pros and i mean even what we did with the girls this week a lot of them are mountain bikers that's their main focus and we had them on road bikes um, so could you maybe talk about like when you really need to start transitioning over to being more on your mountain bike? It depends so much on the athlete, I guess, right? Like if you're, if it was an option to ride year round, like I, I don't see a huge problem with that. Maybe taking a week or two off here and there. It's very easy to say that like in Tucson. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, there, we have fat bikes in Canada now and stuff too. So, I mean, you, your definition of mountain biking can slightly be expanded, um, but that would actually a winter mountain bike. Like I used to always ride my mountain bike outside in the winter um, on the road because there was no trails. But I'd maybe catch, you know, side trails that were getting plowed or snowshoers had packed down or different things like that to get a bit of sort of quote unquote mountain biking. Um, but I guess specific to your question, like in the it's the same as when would you start doing intensity versus base, right? It's sort of those maybe two to three months out, mm-hmm. you know, um, certainly in that that last build phase into your race, you would want to be on that race bike and going quickly off road. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that could be Leadville quickly, too. And the, the off road could be more gravel than trail if it was something, you know, a, a more 100 miler style thing like Leadville that's 
you know, essentially a gravel grinder that just gets a little rocky in places and certainly is hilly. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, thinking about the race and the, the what mountain biking is, because there's certainly a lot of variety there and what it could mean to you. Yeah, and I think the last thing on this topic actually kind of segues very nicely into our next question. Um, I really like the switching up the bikes because it means you're switching up what saddle and mm-hmm. what position you're in. And our next question is how can you get through a base training phase without getting a saddle sore? And I would say my number one piece of advice would probably be if you can switch out what bike you're riding every day, you know, every third day or something, be doing your ride on your mountain bike instead of your road bike. Um, you can really help yourself out a lot because that way you're putting pressure on different parts um, and you've got just, you know, slightly different saddle. You're going to be sitting slightly different, shifting your weight in a different way. Uh, so that's going to really help keep your your nether regions feeling a little bit happier, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so to I kind s- of... I wonder, like, because there would be, it's about the base phase specifically, right? Yeah, which basically just means you're riding most days for pretty extended hours. Mm. Um, and, you know, pretty often people kind of tend to go from zero to 100 on this. Yeah, I was going to say the gradual progression, right? The sort of yeah. progressive overload. So this, this podcast is a lot of sort of the qualities of training, right? So we had variety in the last question, Um and specificity and then now we have gradual overload yeah so a lot of people you know it's like okay i've had my off season base training starts this week 16 hours on the bike um and for a lot of people going from zero to 16 hours uh can be pretty rough on again that undercarriage nether region area um i'm not gonna go specific because i i feel like this applies to men and women so i'm i'm using the generality of undercarriage we'll say right um, so please don't yell at me for not using the proper anatomical thing. This is just so it applies to everyone. Uh, I get yelled at about that like once a talk, so figured I'd put that out there. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an it's it is it's an uncomfortable topic, right? But it does affect I think everyone, and I think the important thing is that like in general we should be able to avoid this and use it almost as like a, a, a threshold of sorts, right? Where the tissue is saying, you know, this was too much and you might need a recovery day or an off day completely or a yeah. cross training day, or like you say, maybe even just a different saddle, different chamois. To me, the big mistake I see is people will take, you know, it's like three days on, one day off, but the off day, they actually still go out and pedal for 90 minutes or whatever. And unfortunately, even though the easy pedaling might be fine aerobically, your tissue could really use a break. So I'm a really, really big fan of getting out and going for a long walk, doing a yoga class, doing a strength training session, literally anything that isn't putting your butt on the saddle. Um, And of course, you know, this is kind of the classic stuff, but you know, making sure your bike actually fits you properly. You know, if if in the off season or, you know, oh, I haven't been on a bike in, in a year or so because I took a year off and, you know, XYZ changed in my life, uh, you might need a new bike fit. It might be time to just go get, you know, go get it tweaked. Um, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. So just consider that the bike that fit you perfectly last year might not fit you perfectly this year. Um, and of course, same applies to saddles. Um, saddles wear out. Like we don't think about it, but they really can start wearing down and wearing out. So you might actually, the saddle might still be the best saddle for you, but you might need to replace it. 
when they bend too and yeah exactly racing cross or mountain or even has crashed on the road or mm-hmm. you know shipped their bike with the saddle it's, it's possible for it to get a little like tilted right mm-hmm. exactly um so good bike fit good saddle you know good chamois something that isn't chafing i know it's one of those things during you know intensity periods i can ride in pretty much anything because i know the ride's going to be over in an hour but when i'm going to be on the bike for four or five hours that's where my like good chamois come out and that's what i'm wearing even if it means i have to do laundry every other day i will do that despite having plenty of chamois i will rely on my couple of personal favorites yeah and the clothes are super important like it's not cheap to get decent clothes for any sport but a lot of times it's definitely like it can be hugely performance enhancing i'm a huge fan of the high low idea where you spend money on the stuff that really matters so to me with clothing the stuff that really matters is the chamois you know you can get a super cheap jersey and it doesn't really matter right so i would spend the money on a good chamois and then get whatever is on sale for a jersey personally yeah, sure, that makes sense. And this is something I'm incredibly passionate about. I feel like people spend a ton of money on jerseys and socks and completely neglect the chamois because, I mean, frankly, it looks boring, well, right? Even, like basic even, black, whatever's fine. And, I mean, even the bike and things like that, too, right? There's definitely, like, you know, if you have an extra 2000 for the, like, ultimate top-level model, is there, you know, usually the model that's $2,000 less is pretty totally similar, fine. Right? Exactly. Um, So all of that. And then base training is probably the one time of year that I actually use chamois cream. Um, And my my general thoughts on chamois cream are it can be amazing. It shouldn't be a crutch if you have to use it for every single ride. Like if you can't pedal for 30 minutes without chamois cream, you need a change in your bike fit, your saddle or your chamois. Um, For a long ride, though, it's fantastic. but people tend to overdo it on it. Um, I've been on so many group rides where you actually see the chamois cream sort of coming out around the chamois in like a nice gooey white line. Uh, it's pretty gross. I've had it. I've heard someone refer to it as a slip and slide situation down there. Right. We want to avoid that quarter size. And actually, my best advice is put it directly on the parts where you have chafing. If you try to do the thing where you put it on the chamois and then pull the chamois up, you're probably just going to end up with some chamois cream on your quad, and it's not really going to do anything for you. Yeah, and I think, so this is, a lot of this information's in your book, Saddle Sore, right? Yes, Saddle Sore, Ride Comfortable, Ride Happy. And that would be, on, that's on Amazon, mm-hmm. and then also it's Saddle Sore Book. Yeah, saddlesorebook.com. Um, and I guess the only other thing is just standing, I find, especially if, totally. if you're doing base phase, especially if you're doing base phase, uh, maybe indoors, or if you're just riding indoors in general, um, a lot of times, A, you're not going hard. So if you're not pen- pushing down hard on the pedal, then sort of more pressure, if you can think through that, like if you're not pushing down on the pedal, sort of unweights maybe your your hips a bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and when you're going hard, a lot of times you're like moving around and like sliding back and forth and sort of like shifting the load. Um, so that sort of happens with base phase. So that's one reason it's more prone. And then because, again, you're not going hard or like really smashing hills, maybe you're not standing as much. And I think in general, that's something I see a lot is people don't stand a lot anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly in base phase, I think that maybe, you know, the idea is to stay seated and just keep it sort of steady all day. Yeah, I actually had a couple of uh, 
people in the last month ask me why their butts were going numb on these four-hour rides. And I just had to be like, because you haven't stood up in two hours. Yeah, it's tough. And I think, especially as fitness, like as you're in the more, um, I guess, the less fit riders, right? I think you definitely see that more and more because they're sort of glued to the saddle. They mm-hmm. haven't quite, you know, refined the standing pedaling. Um, and again, they're just, I think that pushing down on the pedals, like I think as people get fitter and are pushing down harder and harder and cadence comes up, I think you get a little bit more unweighting. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll add on this is uh, when you're doing these longer base days, the tendency tends to be you come home and you're very, very hungry because you probably under ate on your ride. Sorry. Um, and you're, you're hungry. So, you know, you get in. You immediately go to the kitchen, you make a snack, you check your email because you've been gone for like four or five hours. So, you know, the world has moved on without you. Uh, You know, you return the phone calls you missed. You, you know, realize you need to take out the dog or the trash or whatever. And you're doing all this and suddenly 90 minutes has elapsed and you're still in your gross, sweaty chamois. Um, Trust me, you want to get out of your chamois as soon as humanly possible. It takes... 10 seconds to get out of your chamois and switch into different shorts. Please do that before you do anything else when you get home. Your your undercarriage will thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I hate showering, so it's definitely like, if I, if I, <laughs> if I don't do it when I get home, it definitely is like end of the day and I still haven't done it. So it's, I mean, if if you're like me and it just, you hate showering and the disruption of it, it's often better just to like only have to undress that once and rip then, that bandaid off. Yeah, I mean you're you're already you know take your clothes off, so you're already ready to shower. So to me, it's like it's actually more efficient if I just do it right off the bat. Totally. Um, and and sometimes I'll get food cooking. You know, if you're gonna have some tea or some coffee or put a sweet potato in the microwave, like you could throw that in right and get it sort of cooking. I always find the oatmeal is a little risky that you're gonna burn that and boil it over while you're in the shower. I've done. But, we'll do again. But you could trial that and figure out the right ratios and temperatures. And this all segues. I'm super excited about how the how well these questions segue. Um, if you are coming home and you're so ravenous that you can't possibly pause to take off your chamois before you eat something, you probably haven't been eating or drinking enough on the bike, which leads us to the next question of tips for getting good at eating and drinking on the bike. Um, This is something that has come to my attention a few times, both in the camps that I've been at and then even doing this uh, great talk we did at the Trek store last night here in Tucson. Uh, I had a couple women talking to me and asking about tips for how to get better at drinking on the bike because they literally don't drink until their group stops, which for some of them can be 90 minutes in, they're stopped and that's the first time they're taking a sip of water. And, you know, I found the past couple endurance camps I coached, you know, the girls that I was riding with could technically eat on the bike, but they really weren't. They would wait until we stopped for a pee break or something to start unwrapping and actually eating food. So they're not eating consistently. And, you know, if they're in a race and the race is over 90 minutes, I'm pretty sure at some point they're going to need to be eating on the bike. Yeah, it sounds simple, but it's hugely... A, performance enhancing and B, like very common that, you know, you have to really back off the pace and get away from people to eat or uh, you just don't eat. Right. And I think mm-hmm. it's at all levels you see that. Right. You yeah. Know, and I think with the younger athletes, you see it, too, because their races are shorter or maybe even beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, you know, people coming from spin class or like maybe 
Zwift was their their entrance into the sport, you know, indoor training. Um, you know, they're maybe not used to having like one hand off the bars or both hands off the bars. Um, it's definitely, it's an advanced move that we don't really think about. Like a lot of people get into riding later, you know, they're doing hour long group rides to start and you know, you don't really need to eat or drink for an hour. You can get through. So you don't ever learn. And then suddenly your fitness is, you know, getting up there and you can do longer rides, but now you don't actually know how to eat or drink properly and no one has ever taught you um we you know when we think of bike skills we think about mountain biking we think about bunny hopping over logs we think about you know taking a gnarly downhill on our mountain bike but we very rarely remember that road biking also has a lot of skills and one of them and it's true for road mountain and cross one of them is being able to eat and drink successfully on the bike yeah it's weird like I don't know when it occurred to me, but I guess at some points I, I realized that like to do some of these big races and certainly even XC races, like you had to do it and you had to be able to do it while, you know, aero tucked or, you know, in a pack or, you know, sometimes we we're like on bumpy double track, you know, or something like that. And yeah, you got to be able to take that hand off. And if you can take both hands off, A, it's a nice sort of posture break. And then B, you can sort of get into all your pockets and switch bottles and it's definitely, definitely nice. And again, it gives you more variety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's sort of like, I think the entrance point sometimes I explain to people is we're, we're all semi-familiar with doing a plank on the ground, right? And everyone holds their static plank. But I, I get so much flack in the gym when I make people like lift their one arm and touch their shoulder or lift their one arm. And sometimes they'll do like a plate pass where you sort of like pass the plate over to one side and then put your hand on the ground and then lift the other hand and grab that plate and shove it back the other way. Um, there's things like bear crawling, uh, where you sort of are effectively crawling like a baby, but you lift your knees like an inch off the ground. And so basically you're lifting opposite hand and foot at the same time as you crawl across the floor. So you're on two limbs and that just crushes people. Um, especially if you make them really breathe, like people can do the, the plank pass or the plank, and hold their breath but if you're making like do it and hold your breath or sorry and breathe between each people will fall right over right so to me that relates back to taking one hand off your handlebar you have to put pressure into your hand and then balance that to your hips and your feet Um, and certainly like standing pedaling which we were just talking about standing is effectively like bear crawling where you're shifting the bike to one side all your weights on the opposite pedal Then you're shifting the bike back the opposite way, all your weight's on that other pedal. Um, And that, for a lot of people, would be hugely performance-enhancing if they could get that smooth pedaling motion. Uh, But a lot of people are missing that. Yeah, for sure. So that's one way you can kind of work on that in the gym. Um, To me, another really good way to work on your eating and drinking on the bike is a lot of us do spend time on the trainer in the winter. And what I've noticed is if you look at pictures of people that they post, you know, selfies or whatever, you notice that a lot of them have their water bottle on the table next to them um, and their food is on the table next to them. Now, the problem with that is great. You have easier access to it, but you're now not practicing the movement of reaching down and grabbing your water bottle out of the cage and taking a sip and putting it back. Um, So I'm a huge fan of actually putting your bottle in the cage on indoor training i mean it's really just that specificity and why not practice you know putting a gel or a bar or whatever keto paleo snacks you eat (laughs) on the bike 
put them in your, you know, I always have my back right pocket is food, back left pocket is tools, middle pocket is like phone and money. Um, and just every time you get on the trainer, you know, if you need food, then do it and then practice that. And I think practice it even during intervals, if you're going to have to do it in a race, right? If you're burning some threshold intervals, then... And you don't even have to eat it, right? Like you can just throw the gels in your pocket on the trainer and just practice taking them you, out. You could. I think if, if you're doing intensity, like I think there would be some argument at some point to also consume it. And we talked last Q&A, I think, about game playing, nutrition, and uh, training the gut. For sure. But I'm just saying. Sure. I mean, you're essentially just doing mobility. Like a lot of us don't have the ability to sort of like touch our hands behind the mm-hmm. back. You know, that classic one, you sort of put one up over the top and then one the other way. Um and, and a lot of us don't have that thoracic mobility or shoulder mobility to sort of get that hand into those pockets. So mm-hmm. a great way to build mobility is to just have that movement variety and actually put your hand over your head periodically and put your hand behind your back periodically. Yeah. And then I think my last piece of advice on this topic is if you really do have trouble eating, especially a lot of people have trouble eating when they're in a group in particular, you know, like, let's just let's just put it out there some people just aren't going to get comfortable with that. It's going to take them a while. Um, To me, this is where, you know what, this is the reason you can drink your calories on the bike. Um, So I really like... Assuming you can get your bottle out. Assuming you can get your bottle out. I think the bottle is easier than eating. It's easier to, I mean, it's just easier to drink than it is to get through a gel or chew through a bar. And I mean, I'm pretty comfortable in a group, but if I was, the times I have road raced, I would use mix because it's so hectic. Exactly. Um, I would rather, like I often have gels or a bar or something and like there's usually like breaks in the action or you can sort of get to the back of the pack when it's chill, but. Hey, let's be honest, some group rides, much sketchier than road racing. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is a timing piece and I think a vision, like a lot of us will have to look at our bottle when we're putting in. So again, on the trainer, Molly's advice to sort of practice finding that bottle cage automatically. Um, For mountain bikers, I would be taking it in and out like on single track carefully. I didn't tell you to do it, but try it. Um, no guarantees, but, you know, getting used to even the bottle being in your mouth, which isn't great for your teeth, but sometimes you have to do that. Um, you know, if you're going to have to do those things, you know, 50 mile mountain bike race and single track, um, you're just practicing that skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I really like tailwind as far as drink mix goes. I find it's very light tasting, even though it has a pretty good amount of calories in it. Um, I like scratch lab stuff. Um, you have to, you know, you can experiment with a bunch of different brands and Those figure are two out popular ones. what works yeah. for you. But I do think it's nice to have that as at least an option. You know, on any ride that I do by myself, I'll eat real food. And, you know, a lot of smaller group rides, if it's just me and a couple friends, uh, the one endurance camp I just did where it was me and four women, you know, no problem. I'll, you know, have gels, I'll have bars. But when I know it's going to be just a little bit more hectic drink mix just make sure that i get the calories that i actually need to not end up bonked yeah and there's a lot of options too we should give a shout out goo send a bunch of stuff for the girls at the camp so Mm -hmm. there and i know a lot of clients um and it seems like a lot of clients in that sort of distance stuff seem to use goo although they sponsor the trek factory team too i guess as well right so and they have some cool stuff with branch chain amino acids and two uh two different types of carbohydrate I'm blanking on the more technical term but um so that you can sort of get more in with hopefully less uh chance of gut, gut, issues. gut issues thank you I don't know why I'm blanking on carbohydrate yeah. metabolism at the moment but also bear shout, with out, me. shout out to their waffles; they're very tasty well that's what I mean yeah they have a, a good variety of stuff right they have like sort of chews they have gel they have 
in the bottle and then they have some solids as well yeah so yeah that's so i think that's it you got to practice right and yeah. i think like anything you practice at home on the train you're isolated you practice on the road uh, on your own in a safe place with no cars you know maybe you're on your own on a like slightly busier area or something a bike path or something um and then you go maybe go with a friend who's really good at riding and isn't going to like plow you over and then maybe like a bigger group and you just sort of scale into it right and you just sort of check mark check mark mark check mark and it's same as i think you would do any skill or any fitness right like gradual exposure i think you'll be amazed at how much fitter you are than you realize yeah. when you start realizing oh i've actually just been kind of dehydrated and kind of under fueled for forever yeah and you have a book fuel your ride which can mm -hmm. cover some of the goals uh, some options for fueling and stuff but as far as goals per hour but it, it is like 200 calories as like a minimum when you're concerned about performance so yeah that's the way i usually phrase it to people like if it's if you don't really care how you're gonna do and you're gonna you know you're in base phase and you're not training tomorrow um and you're not going super long or super hard then it's not as big a deal but if you're on a group ride and you care about how well you're going to do and it's getting longer and or it's very intense, like you definitely want that sugar coming in. Yeah, exactly. All right. Last question. And I can't figure out a good way to segue food and drink into this. But I guess the mobility of being able to reach into your back pocket. The, sure. Uh, this is actually from a runner slash cyclist um, with tight calves. Yeah. Help. Important for anyone. And yeah. let me tell you, I was just doing some hill stuff yesterday and I was I was feeling this question deeply. Well, I mean, that's the my first answer is to definitely, you know, go out and hike up some hills, walk up some Darn hills. Darn it. Um, great way to naturally build that. So I mean if you have an option to go out and walk, that's great. If you can do some hills, that's great. Um and, and sometimes there's like things in the house. Um we happen we just got a foam uh, block which you can get i think off amazon but it's like a, a wedge if you picture like a, a foam roller but in the shape of a wedge i don't know how to better describe that's it that's a terrible tri triangular prism yes um so basically you're going to stand on this like sloped foam wedge and you can stretch your calves in a variety of ways doing that you can do two foot one foot um, and that's nice but you can do the same thing with a rolled up towel um and so you could have two feet on that and sort of hinge at your hips and you'll really feel your hamstrings likely doing that um and I, I think that's important to remember too that you have that whole posterior chain the whole back of your legs going from your back to your butt to your hamstrings the sort of back of your thighs to your calves to the bottom of your feet and you're really just trying to find slack and expose your body to variety but expose it to range of motion gradually over time so hiking uphill you're going to sort of hinge forward a little bit at the hip just to sort of lean forward and then you're obviously going to have ankle flexion right uh, related to that everyone has stairs probably in their day or most of us do um, taking the stairs more is great for us but then also you could use stairs or a step or a, a box in your house and do sort of calf raises so that could be two feet one feet you could work on balance but the important bit for the calf mobility is to have a negative so to let your heel drop below the level of the step um, and if you stand up nice and tall, that should be a very nice, again, the ankle is closing beyond 90 degrees. It should be a nice sort of stretch. You can hold that. You can move in and out of it. A lot of people, especially as we age, could do with that as a regular sort of strength. We could call it core, but um, strength exercise, just because that Achilles tendon, the bottom of our feet with plantar fascia, um, that tends to be something that goes, I guess, as we stiffen up, right? You lose some of that, I guess, collagen or just sort of the pliability of tissues. 
So I think that's an easy one to include anywhere you are in the world. You can do it on the phone. You can, you know, you walk upstairs, just do 10 on a couple of the steps when you walk up. Um, what about shoe choice? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're wearing giant shoes, that would be walk around in your bare feet would be a good one. Yeah. And I mean, most of us, and I include men here, you know, we wear heels. Yeah. Like if you look, especially at men's dress shoes, if you're, you know, in an office all day, you're probably wearing shoes that have, you know, a half inch heel. Um, even yeah. for the guys. Yeah, so you still may use that for running. I certainly still do. Like, I, I think yeah. because of my cycling background, like, t- cyclists tend to have fairly stiff. Like, you've stiffened into that 90 degree and just pushed down. And that that's efficient. But, again, for, for walking and for certainly for running, it comes back on you. Yeah, and I actually just wrote an article over on the Outdoor Edit about how to transition to barefoot running. And pretty much the entire article is don't transition to barefoot running right yeah you want to walk for sure you yeah you want most of your life to be as barefoot as possible and then running is actually like kind of almost you're you're better off not going barefoot on the run but being barefoot throughout the rest of your day and we had kitty bowman on way back um i'll link to that uh it's a really good episode and she's got a lot of really good content around being barefoot and movement variety and you know putting different movements into your day um, and then what else did we do? I was thinking of something else. Well, I think a lot of us can even think about that at the office, you know, okay, you're, you're at the office. Can you just like slip your shoes off under your desk and, you know, Walk not be, not be wearing them during the day, especially, honestly, especially women in heels. Like if you can just keep those shoes off while you're sitting at your desk, even trying some, some flats or some boots. Yeah. Vivo barefoot is the brand we often wear. Uh, and they have dress shoes and desert boots and what are the Chelsea boots for yeah. women and really nice stuff. ballet flats and just different ones. So, yeah, I, I, that's a great one. Um, I think walking just in general and making sure that you walk in a way that your feet are straight-ish at least. A lot of us who don't have that calf mobility end up turning our foot out to skip the calf mobility part of the walking. So when your foot's behind you, your leg's behind you... Um, you, you should, again, that, that ankle's going to approach or go past 90 degrees as you're sort of like, you know, letting that foot come off the ground. Uh, but you can skip that by turning your foot out. So sort of going, that would be like duck-footed mm-hmm. um, and sort of s- swinging that around, right? So sometimes when we have like flattened feet, that can be sort of related to that turning the foot out and letting that collapse. And that may or may not be an issue. But if you're concerned about calf mobility, you know, in some sports like running uphill, you can't really do that a lot and you're going to get forced into that position. So it may be worth training that. Mm -hmm. And then what about foam roller, lacrosse ball? What's your sort of method of choice for massage? I mean, I I think you're going to want something that's smaller. So something like a yoga block with a lacrosse ball on top of it can be pretty good on that calf. You're sort of sitting on the ground, long sitting. uh, And then you can sort of, you can either cross one leg over the other and sort of really get in on that calf. And the thing is not just rolling it, but pinning it and then moving your foot around. So like pulling your toes up to your calf and then pointing your toes and circles with your foot just to try and tack that tissue. That, that could be helpful. I, I, I think the like walking uphill is, gonna, is like really good and it's sort of, again, sort of fits into movement more. Um, sometimes what you see too, if you look up mobility wad, ankle mobility or something on YouTube, you'll find it. I'll try and link to it. 
but effectively you can use a band. So if you think like a bike tube sort of fastened to something behind you, you put one foot through it and then you're going to sort of do like classic calf mobility. So sort of letting your knee go forward over your toes and then letting it come back. Um, that band pulling backwards can sometimes really help get that through. And that could be like sort of that ankle joint getting maybe bunched up or something. It's hard to say. Um, but the joint distraction sometimes can be really, really nice way to, to do some of that classic calf mobility. We've probably all seen that like stand against the wall and like move your knee back and forth towards the wall, which I think before a run or a walk or in the morning before your core, before you, whatever, like that, that would be sort of the last thing I would add into is just sort of that classic calf mobility. Mm-hmm. All right. Perfect think that's it for this episode. Again, if you guys have any questions, keep them coming. You can shoot us a message over on consummateathlete.com on the contact page, or just hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Um, Peter is at Peter Glassford. I'm at Molly J. Herford. And yeah, thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.